Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host and Fine Woodworking Editor, Tom McKenna, and with me are regulars, Executive Art Director, Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. And Special Projects Editor, Matt Kenny. Howdy, everyone. Good to be here today. <laughs> As always, uh, before we get started, I need to take care of some uh, important business. I uh, just want to let you know that this episode of Shop Talk Live is sponsored by Highland Woodworking. Shop online at highlandwoodworking.com and find all the brands you know and love to use in your shop, as well as many unique tools you haven't heard about yet. Family-owned and operated since 1978, Highland has a friendly, experienced staff who are always ready to answer your questions. And right now, Highland is offering a free $199 value saw stop accessory upgrade when you buy a saw stop professional cabinet saw. Don't miss out on this limited time opportunity to save at highlandwoodworking.com. I wonder if that 199 value is like a membership to the Hot Dog of the Month Club. <laughs> <laughs> like a three year membership to yes. the. Yeah, maybe not. Not an appropriate joke? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> All right. Um, hey, before getting to the uh, to the questions, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, a recent letter that I got regarding a technique that we showed in the magazine. And uh, this person uh, writes, I said about making the two-walled box described in Fine Woodworking 250 article, Beautiful Bandsawn Boxes. That was by Michael Cullen. Being a beginner, I followed the illustrated instructions carefully. Mr. Cullen advises, with the bandsaw table still angled, saw off the waste piece at the lower end of the plug, then take a second slice to make the bottom of the box. Last, cut a slice off the top of the plug. And these three cuts are illustrated with a photo, he says. Um, and this person writes, in my attempt to do exactly what is illustrated, the saw blade dug in, the plug rotated downward to the table, jammed, kicked back the plug, and badly bruised my thumb. I respectfully switched off the machine and counted my fingers. And it's it's a it's an important technique thing to note. Um, both Matt and I made bandswan boxes based on that article, and I made the two walled box as well. But I didn't have the same problem. But I think it's something we didn't reinforce in the magazine about the technique was the importance of keeping the workpiece engaged with the table as it entered the blade. Right. Anytime you cut something curved. Like uh, on the bandsaw that has a that's not a flat surface that sits flat on the table. Right. The whatever's being cut, you know, right in front of the blade and in the blade that has to be on the table. Because yeah. if it doesn't start there, it's going to end up there <clears throat> exactly. really yes. quick. Yeah, because yeah. the cutting force of a bandsaw is straight Comes down. down. Right. right. Yeah. So, so this is like a football shape. So that point yep. was. He probably had it air. up in the air. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, as, and as soon as it caught, I'm sure it went right down. And, and, you know, if you watch any of the Sam Maloof videos from way back when or watch the photographs of him sculpting those uh, crazy legs that he made, he, you look and he's always got that workpiece down against the table where it's right against the blade. Mm. So it's an important thing to uh, remember. And yeah. didn't you talk to, about, to Michael about this, didn't you, Matt? Yeah, when I was uh, in Michael's shop a couple of weeks ago, we were uh, doing a video workshop on these uh, bandsawn boxes. And um, I, I think that comes out in another month or two. Um, but uh, I talked to Michael about this, and uh, it's – I've you know I've cut on the bandsaw the way we showed in the magazine and it is uh safe as long mm -hmm. as you keep the part being what's being cut 
right in front of the blade on the table. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, for this thing, you got to kind of have to curve it as it, you know, roll it through, so to speak. Well, Michael uh, ex- uh, gave an alternate uh, way to do this if uh, you're not uncomfortable doing that, which I have to admit, it probably takes some experience at the bandsaw to get comfortable doing that. That little rolly, curvy the thing. Little yeah. Rolly, yeah. yeah. So um, what he suggested doing is that we, at this stage of making the box, you've cut out the interior, the inside, and the outside of the box is still flat and square. So you actually can take one of the sides of it, that the off-cut side, so oh, to speak, okay. what's going mm-hmm. to become the outside, right? and turn it over so the flat side is on the table and use it like a cradle. Oh, nice. And if you do that, the blade should be 90 degrees to the table when you do that. Right. What Michael did in the article, when he cut the, 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 the lid keeper and the bottom free from that plug, the table was still – Tilted, yeah. angled over. So, uh, if because if you tilt the table back to ninety degrees and then try to cut that plug, oh, it's not only, be at, at an angle, right? Yeah, not yeah. only will you have the issue of trying to roll it through, but also that that angles ta- the, the 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 plug is tapered, so you're kind of holding it up and only having a tiny little point on the table, right? So, if you're going to do it without the the cradle, the table should be left angled. And that's what it says in the in the, in the article, um, and cut it. Then you have the full width or the height of the plug on the table, and as you roll it through, or switch over and use the off cut as a cradle, and uh, tilt the table back to ninety degrees. Right. Yeah. So. Oh, cool. Glad that's settled. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it's a problem. I think sometimes the magazine makes things look too easy. And uh, those projects looked super simple, and they were, but, you know, it's that one thing that, you know, experienced people know. And I think it's something that we encounter with our authors when we go on photo shoots, and, you know, they they know what they're doing, and they have all these set methods of of working, and you go and you you see them do something that they do every day, and you're like, oh, that's really cool. And they're like, well, I just do this every day. But they never – talk about it it's all part of their muscle memory so it's yeah, just if we a, accurately conveyed the difficulty of the craft in the magazine no one would do it <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it'd be like putting in woodworking is inherently dangerous on the headlines yeah every time yeah a title of every article is woodworking is inherently dangerous <laughs> you might lose a finger <laughs> all right let's let's get to some uh, some questions um the first one comes from jonathan howe and Jonathan writes, when working on table saws of one and three quarter horsepower or lower, is there any reason not to use thin curve blades exclusively when doing through cuts? No. No. All right. Let's no. move on. Let's move on. <laughs> no, in fact, um, I think Raleigh Johnson even recommended keeping a thin curve blade in your saw if you're using like a sort of a mid powered one and yeah, three quarter anything horse horsepower. Yeah. horsepower. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that said, I have a three horse unisaw and I've had a regular full thickness um, woodworker two blade from Forrest in there forever. I also have one from Ridge and um, that's what I always use. I, I never, I think I had a, a bad experience with a thin curved blade cutting, just trimming, skimming cuts on really thick stock and the blade seemed to deflect a little bit. So I've never used thin curved blades since that. But um, a while back I got a couple blades in to do like a little tools and materials review on a couple of Freud blades. And I tested the full curve Freud blade and it was like, well, yeah, this is fine, but I never actually ended up using it after that. You know, it's, it's decent, but I never 
picked it up. But then I, I needed a thin curved blade. I was making a lot of little strips, and I wanted to save some waste in between the strips. So I remembered I had this thin curved blade around, and I put that in just specifically for that. And it cut so much better that that's actually in my saw probably 50 or 60% of the time now. So I'm kind of sold. I think I'm, I'm sort of sold on the fact that the thin curved blade, it cuts easier. There's less mm -hmm. waste. It's more mm -hmm. efficient. And um, I don't know. I'm kind of liking it. Yeah, yeah they're fantastic. I, I use them off and on. I have a couple of different uh, brands of them in my shop. Um, and I they're fantastic. And uh, Raleigh, I remember when I did that article with Raleigh. I edited it. And uh he, I remember, was skeptical going into it. He was like, uh, you know, uh, these, you know, these things deflect, et cetera, et cetera. But we tested them, and I mean, they cut just as well as full core, full, mm -hmm. full curve blades. Yeah, or standard curve blades, I should say. And uh, yeah, so there's no reason not to use one. Yeah. The only problem I had is I don't have a riving knife with my saw because it's an older saw. Mm -hmm. So I have the throat plates, and I glue like a little you know, tongue depressor size tab behind the blade. Yes. But that thing was sized for my full curve wow. blade. Uh -huh. So the first rip cut that I, got I, made, yeah. the, I was pushing, it got harder and harder to push. And I thought, why is it so hard to push? And I realized it, you know, it was just skinny enough for the curve to fit mm -hmm. into that little splitter, but thick enough to make it really hard. So I think the first time, I think I, I sort of manned up and pushed it all the way through because <laughs> nice. I was like freaked out. What do I do? Turn the blade off because you couldn't back it up or anything. Right. Um, so I've since got out my shoulder plane and thinned up that guy just a little bit. Yeah, oh, that's a good solution. And most, you know, modern saws have, you know, two riving knives, one right? for standard blades and the other for thin curve. Or the, the well, comes with right. one that's yeah. just for, they can accommodate both. Yeah, I think that, oh. yeah, it can thin our standard curve. Cool. All right. Well, let's, this, is, uh, this is moving along really fast. Let's jump into uh, segment number one. Uh, it's time for our all-time favorite technique of all time for this week. And, um, Matt, do you want to hit it off? Sure. So um, mine has to do with cutting rabbits at the table saw using a dado set. And uh, the standard technique for this, which I learned watching Norm Abram on uh, New Yankee Workshop, is that you uh, put a sacrificial fence on your rip fence and you set up a dado stack that is wider than your rabbit is going to be. Okay. And you bury part of the blade in the sacrificial fence and then you run your piece along it. You cut mm -hmm. the rabbit, right? Yes. Yep. I mean, that part is fairly easy because you can uh, measure for the width of the rabbit uh, and um, have that set, have your rip fence set perfectly for the width of the rabbit before you turn the saw even on. Right. The the more pain in the neck part of doing it is getting the depth of the rabbit correct or how high the blade needs to be above the saw table, right? right? And the way that I've done it always in the past and probably everyone else has done it is to uh, get it close and then slowly dial it in. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Multiple cuts. Multiple, multiple cuts. Checking with your combo mm -hmm. square. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, I, what I recently figured out is that 
um, before I put that sacrificial fence on is I take my a combo square or I actually have this similar thing from Lee Valley, which is like three inches wide. Is it, I think they call it a cabinet maker square. Mm-hmm. Oh, that yes, right. Which is I find <clears throat> easier to track along an edge of board and keep your pencil there. So I just set that thing to the depth of my rabbit uh, and just draw a pencil line mm-hmm. down the sacrificial fence piece. Put it on the you know put it on the fence. Set the width and then raise the blade. And when the blade hits the pencil line. You know, boom, you're done. That's exactly at the height it should be at. No test cuts, nothing. And then you just run the the piece over it, and it cuts a perfect rabbit without any test cuts. Well, that's cool. Good guy. Yeah, so that works awesome. Awesome. Now, do you find typically what I'll do is when I am doing bearing the blade in is I'll actually raise the blade up a little bit higher than the cut and then back down to give it a little bit of clearance. Mm-hmm. But this method, you're you're running the blade at maximum elevation, so you've got almost no clearance between the wood. That doesn't bind or burn or anything like that. Uh, no, the, there's no burning or anything. Okay, I'm not. So you're saying you 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 would take it higher than the just like a pinch higher than come, back, come down, back down, just to leave that little bit of clearance room. Yeah, and that's clearance what, of what for what? what? Just between the blade and your sacrificial fence stock. Oh yeah, no, there was no burning. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, I followed Mike's method, but I I do it just because it's easier for me at least to you know back down as opposed to raise it up to to dial in the fit, hmm. dial in the rabbit. But well, here's my new improved method. Awesome. Because I I used to do that, you know, bring the fence over, bring the bit the blade into the fence until Matt convinced me that's stupid. Because you have all these little half moon arcs in your fence and you have to replace it. And Matt taught me to clamp on your fence just slightly above where the blade is going to go. Right. So I like your method of the mark and raise, but I like your other method of having the fence too high. So the next time I'm going to forget this, but it will be my favorite technique the next (laughs) time I do this. I'm going to attach my fence a little above the final position of the blade. But then I'm going to spring clamp on a little piece of quarter-inch MDF with my height scribed to that, put it over there, raise my blade into that, take it off. Yeah. Best of all worlds. Yeah. So all time, right? The, yes. the, the little half moons that you cut into the sacrificial fence, which makes it – I mean, basically, as you go from one to the other, that you can't really reuse that section. Oh, I do all the time. And that's <laughs> yeah. not good. Yeah, because you, you, yeah, you don't want your workpiece <laughs> dipping into a higher, right. you know, higher cutout. So what I have switched to – this works for me because a lot of – you know, I'm not working with eight-foot-long pieces. You know, maybe a, a piece that's maybe a two to three feet long at the most. Right. Uh, is instead of making a sacrificial fence that is like 40 inches long, which is, you know, like as long as my rip fence is, I make one that's like 20 inches long. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I, I use three, I usually use three quarter inch MDF. And that gives me, uh, you know, at least one, two, three, four uses before I chuck it. And uh, you're using up... Uh, Meaning you can do it once, rotate it, use it once, flip, flip it flip once, it. flip and rotate once. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yep. And you get four uses out of it. And really, you don't need to... I mean, you don't really need to have a long sacrificial fence. It only needs to have a little bit of guidance before the blade mm-hmm. and some guidance after the blade. Okay. So, you know, like 20 inches uh, is long enough, I've found. Cool. Uh, and that's what, So that's... 
when I do that, that's what I do. But I, you know, I also do it the other way where you talk about you have the sacrificial fence just higher. You don't actually cut into it. It's right. just yeah. it's just over the blade, but low enough that where you still get the the workpiece bears against it. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. How about you, Mike? Well, um, I stole my this week's favorite all time technique of this week from Instagram from a post by Tim Russo who's been posting a lot and has been doing really, really cool stuff. He did a really quick 15-second video on his tips for gluing up thin panels. And he had a pair of tips. One was he uses those those Bessie uh, parallel jaw clamps, you know, the, the red plastic mm-hmm. jaws. But instead of having them sitting upright with the jaws facing up, he laid them flat. So he's resting the this thin stock, maybe half-inch thick, flat on the bars, and the jaws stick up only about a half inch, you know, so you're basically clamping on the sides of the jaws mm-hmm. that way. That was really cool. I thought, okay, that's nice. I like that. He put glue on the boards, laid them down, and just before he started to tighten up the clamps, he had these black, those binder clips, um, oh. and he clamped each little binder clip at each joint in the panel. He had like a four board, so he had three clips on each side. He clamped right at the joint to hold those boards nice and flat to each other before he tightened up the clamps. And it was like so quick and and brilliant, and I never thought to do anything like that. Um, and I'm definitely going to steal that. So that's my favorite technique of all oh, time. That's cheeky. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't. You know, I don't have um, <clears throat> a woodworking all time favorite technique of the week. I've been basically. Uh, no. uh, I've well, been absent from my shop. I have to admit because I'm redoing a bathroom. <laughs> but I did learn uh, in the past two weeks how to put up ceramic tile and how to put down uh, subflooring and linoleum tile. And I'm learning all about plumbing. So that's where my head is at. Yeah. (laughs) And when you're on fine home buildings, new podcast, (laughs) you can talk all about that stuff. Yeah. I'm not going to bore this audience with that. It was, it's a good experience. It's cool. It's cool to learn new, uh, new tools and techniques. And I learned how to use a tile saw, which was fun. So, but I'm not going to bore uh, bore our cool. audience with that. So, kind your of stuff. technique of the week is for any home improvement. Talk to Patrick McComb talk from to, Fine yes. Home Building. Yes, one eight hundred help Patrick. Yes, <laughs> yes, guy's awesome. He yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah, so, he's fantastic. All right, well, let's get back to uh, some important questions. This one is from Brandon, and Brandon says, I'm a beginning woodworker, and I'm looking for some advice on jointing lumber. I currently rent, and the garage doesn't have 220 volt, a 220-volt outlet, so it can't go any bigger than a 6-inch jointer. My next project will be a dining room table. Below are options I am considering. Purchase a 6-inch jointer and then purchase a hand plane for lumber that's wider than 6 Skip the joiner until I have my own place, and for now, invest in a rabbit block plane, a number four smooth plane, a number seven jointer plane, and a card scraper. If you guys have any other suggestions, I would love to hear them. And I think Patrick is—he's—he's going to come back and haunt us on this one, right, Matt? Right, because I—I verified this one with him. Uh, We thought this was correct, and Patrick confirmed it for us. Uh, We just wanted outside someone—someone outside of the magazine to tell us we're not idiots which he did still say we're idiots, but he said we're right about this. Um, <laughs> because if I am willing to bet most, I, I don't know, it's very likely that your home or apartment, he says he has a garage, he must be at home, he's renting a home, yep. that there is a place to put a clothes dryer in 
all closed dryers run off 220 volt circuits. Unless they're gas, but yeah. Unless they're gas. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you probably have, most people have gas ones, I mean, uh, electric ones, I think. Uh, So all you have to do, you can get an eight inch joiner. And if you don't, call the landlord and say, can you please wire this for a dryer, an electric dryer? Yes. And yes. then you put go. a dryer in. <laughs> yes. And then you'll have a 220 slash, you know, 240 circuit for your eight inch joiner yep. or whatever joiner you want to get. And joiners don't always, big machines don't normally come with a plug already on them. Or they do come with the plug, but you can go to Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever and buy a, 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 an outlet, a receptacle to match it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even if you have to go and buy a dryer cord, you yes. can you know somehow hook up the dryer cord to your jointer and use that uh, to plug it into the outlet, and uh, away you go. Yeah, that's a better solution than going small and then regretting it. Yeah, I, that's the the two options. He should definitely. I would not buy a six inch joiner looking to replace it later. Yeah, in fact, the first house I moved into, I had already had all my uh, machines and everything that had been in storage. And before I got my garage rewired, we had a washer and dryer in there. I did that exact same thing. I cut the uh, the little plug off of my table saw cord. Went to the uh, hardware store to get a plug that matched my dryer thing wired it up with no experience doing this whatsoever <laughs> and it worked you know? I, and so yeah we're fine but um, I agree it's really tough to to get locked into a smaller capacity tool because it's so hard to upgrade from that later yeah, yeah. right it's expensive and you can't sell a six inch joiner I know from experience I will one day, this is somewhat on topic, I will one day bust out my all-time favorite story of, about Mike Pekovich, which involves drywall. On one the day, table saw. Don't do the, it. In the table saw. No. I, one I, day, Mike. I heard about this because I had suggested that to Patrick and he laughed. <laughs> it works really well if you want a clean cut. <laughs> well, I, you know, I should confess something that, that I'm, I know I'm going to get hammered on, but when I was putting down my linoleum tile in the bathroom, trying to, you know, I was fitting and scribing these little, uh, these little squares and I was using my bandsaw to cut them. <laughs> oh yeah. It worked fine. If it works. You know, yeah. It worked. You back it, it you know, up with some plywood or something. No, I just cut it. Oh, you know, okay. I, and it was great because I used the fence and no harm, no foul. And I was mm-hmm. even able to do some uh, circular cutouts for the uh, the toilet bowl. So it's all good, right? For the what? <laughs> toilet bowl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right. We got any more questions? Hey, you can tell we're recording in the afternoon, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's time. Uh, this is a new segment. And... Uh, this, this should be a good one. It's time for our all-time favorite methods of work of all time for this week. And I know we have a very good selection of stuff. Do you want to roll it out, Mike? Sure. So methods of work, for anyone not familiar with the magazine, is a long-running sort of tips department that's been in the magazine for 40 years. Um, little hand-drawn little tips. Um, people send in ideas from their shop and all this. They range from the very simple to the rather complex and overthought. Um, mine is probably, well, it is, it's not only the best methods of work tip of all time of the week, but of all time ever. In fact, I, I claim dibs on this because it's so brilliant. <coughs> what you do, if you have a shoe and it's a little bit worn out, <laughs> <There's not. laughs> 
Chris, step one, get a shoe. Yeah, who has a shoe? God, yeah. Mike. Get a shoe. Why you, it's, this is only for the extremely wealthy. You nail it to a wall, <laughs> and you put your files in it. Issue 15, right there. Fine Woodworking Magazine. That's brilliant. Yeah. They should have just stopped Methods of Work after that. <laughs> they should have. <laughs> And I, I love that. I was doing a, one of our special publications where you know, we do these newsstand um, collections of topic specific, and one was on you know shop tips. And I tried getting that shoe one into that issue, and the editor at the time said, "No freaking way!" <laughs> I said, "But everyone's got a shoe, right?" Yes. <laughs> it's almost as good as the classic. We get it probably once or twice a year where you, the, you know, someone's got a basement workshop and they say, what do you do with your old, you know, peanut butter jars? Or, you know, it could be any kind of jar with a screw sure. on lid. You screw the lid to the joist and then you can, you know, put stuff in the jar <laughs> and you screw it on and you got all these jars hanging down from yes. the joist. Yeah. yeah. Got a workbench in my basement that was there when we moved in and underneath look like a million, you know, tubes from an old TV set, but all these jars hanging down, you know, with their little tops screwed to the underside of the bench. Uh, it's Yankee ingenuity. Absolutely. <laughs> what about you, Matt? My favorite all-time MOW? Well, uh, my knowledge, my memory of MOW is not so great as Mike's, who's sort of like Rain Man when it comes to things like that. So, but mine actually, so I was looking through some issues and I came across one that I do really like, and it's because uh, I see it. I've seen it lots of time in person, and it's one that Chris Gochner submitted. Yeah. And I have been to Chris's shop for photography many times now, like five or six times, and he always pulls this little gizmo out and uses it. And Chris has a uh, old school cast iron face vice, yep. you know, like a record style mm-hmm. vice. And which are good vices, but the problem with them is, is that if you need to clamp something in one side, the vice will rack. Yes. Everybody is familiar with that. Yep. So Chris came up with a really cool wedge. So uh, it's just a block of wood that's tapered on one long face. And then he has glued to it onto the top of it. So uh, is a thin piece of wood that acts like a stop. So you can put this wedge down in your vise, and the the thin piece acts like a stop to keep it up above the vise. But mm-hmm. then the wedge allows you to always have it like the 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 off side of the vise at the same width as the side that you're using to clamp something. So you get equal clamping pressure on both sides of the screw, and you get no racking. Yeah, I remember. It's funny, I Chris again. I'm, I'm with you, Matt. Where he you go to his his shop, and he's always pulling things out from under his bench that are that are brilliant. And he pulled that out on one of my photo shoots, and I said, "What the heck is that?" And he described it, and I said, "Dude, that's a winning methods of work tip right yeah. there." So he was. Uh, Happy to submit it. That is a really good one. But my favorite thing that he pulls out all the time whenever I go there (laughs) is is like toffee. He always has like snacks. It's fantastic. Yeah, sometimes he'll have donuts. Donuts, yeah. And I remember Tom Begnell, one of our former editors, (laughs) used to always whine that whenever he went out to see Chris – he never got donuts, but every time I went out, Chris would be there with a you know bag of donuts from the the shop down the block. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he always has really good snacks. (laughs) <laughs> okay. One of the perks of the job. Yeah. Hey, well, some places you go, they don't, they don't have snacks. They're like, you know, here's a Slim Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been offered a Slim Jim by an author, but 
You don't, um, go, to, you don't go to the South. Maybe, uh, <laughs> well, maybe someday. My favorite method of work of all time of this week um, was actually, I discovered it actually when I was on a photo shoot at Mike's shop. And Mike has, I think, a Delta 14-inch bandsaw. Yes. And um, yep. he, <laughs> we were taking some photos there, and I noticed he had tennis balls on the fences of his uh, of his bandsaw. And I was like, what the heck is that all about? And I, thought he, that, I thought that was kind of weird. hangs his shoes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and so, you know, I took all the photos I needed. I came back and I asked him about it. He said, oh, yeah, I got that from Methods of Work. And sure enough, yeah, here it is um, from, oh boy, what issue was it? From 1998. And uh, I used it on my 14-inch saw where I had the L-bracket fence. And then uh, when I upgraded to my newer bandsaw, I had less of a problem with that. So I wound up putting the tennis balls on my uh, barbell, the ends of my barbell, so I didn't hit my hips anymore. But the tennis balls, you put them on the fence rails so that you don't uh, bump into yeah, them and bonk your hip or you know, whatever. Yeah. Right. So those rails stick out a good a six or eight inches beyond the table. And it's right and at hip bone painful. height. Yeah. And yeah. Especially that little L bracket one yeah. in the back. Yeah. The, good, the good thing is for both of you guys, in a few more years, you'll be able to take them off your fence rails and put them on the bottom of your walker. So <laughs> you'll have tennis balls on the bottom of your walker. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> well, ah, moving on. Hey, you know, this. the reason we did... Um, this special segment, I don't think we'll be, uh, well, maybe we'll do it down the road, but it might be a different title. With our 40th anniversary, we have, um, you know, it's been a party. We've been celebrating the, the traditions and, and what we do here and celebrating the craft and the people behind it. But we're losing one of our key people. Um, Jim Ritchie, the Methods of Work illustrator and editor, is hanging up uh, the pen and pencil. This uh, with this issue with the one that's coming out um, 254. So we uh, we're going to give him a call and uh, talk to him and, and wish him uh, happy trails and kind of get uh, get to know him a little bit more. I don't think any he's he's one of these great people that is behind the scenes, but nobody ever knows him. And he's been uh, he's been illustrating the me- methods of work for like 30, 36 years. Thirty six years. Yeah. And so I'm sure. Um, He's got some good stories, but Jim is, um, he's always been a pro. I worked with him a few times when I, when I did methods of work and he was always on time, always a a great person and, um, we're really going to miss him a lot. So, um, let's get him on the phone and, and, uh, wish him well. All right. So now on the line with us today is a veteran illustrator and editor of methods of work, Jim Ritchie, who is retiring this year. So, uh, Hey Jim, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, with me, with me on the podcast is Mike Pekovich, the art director. Hey, Jim, how are you doing? Hi, Mike. And uh, we have Matt Kenny, which I, I don't know if you've ever met Matt, but he's he's been here a while. Yeah, no, we've actually never met or spoken. How are you, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, Bye, Matt. <laughs> with uh, with your with your exit um, with the current issue, we just wanted to get you on the phone and say thank you and, and talk a little bit about how you. I mean, you basically created this column and this this whole um, 
tip uh, tip technique tip and te- tips and techniques um, with us and uh, just one you know start off taking a step back how how did you get into woodworking was it fine woodworking that inspired you or were you doing it before you got that first issue well uh, you know, back in the uh, 1950s and 60s when I went to school here in Oklahoma it was a requirement that you take a shop class wow of course, that's gone by the wayside. Yeah. Uh, and so I, in junior high, and they called it junior high then, not middle school, <laughs> I took a shop class, a required shop class, and I enjoyed it. And so in high school, I actually elected to take a shop class rather than uh, all my friends and college-bound friends were heading to the trig class, and I was going to shop. <laughs> and I remember uh, making a bongo drum with alternating <laughs> slices of uh, walnut and maple. Do you still have it? So that's kind of kind of how I got in. And then later on, uh, after I got married, my wife bought me a little Sears 8-inch table saw. So that, that sealed the deal. You know, if yeah. you have a table saw, you've got to learn how to be a woodworker. Exactly. So you got the table saw. What was, what was the next tool purchase you had? Oh, probably a router. Yeah. So when you, how long were you doing the woodworking before you um, took on the methods of work? I mean, you you obviously had some illustration, uh, illustrating uh, chops. Did you study drawing in in high school or college or, or anything like that? How did you combine the two? Well, uh, not really. They didn't have art class in high school here, but I did take some oil painting lessons from a local artist. Wow. And I'd always had kind of a knack for drawing, although I didn't know how uh, amateurish my drawings were until I started doing work for uh, fine woodworking. (laughs) It was, you know, when fine woodworking first came out, uh, the advertisements for it, I jumped right on as an initial subscriber because there was nothing out there, really. There were no other magazines and there were, uh, uh, very few books on woodworking. So I was hungry to to learn how to run that eight-inch uh, Sears table saw. <laughs> so I uh, signed on, and I was really taken with the magazine. So I submitted a couple of articles and uh, got acquainted uh, with then-editor John Kelsey and... Uh, he asked me to be a correspondent. I was living in Texas then, and I was, so I became a correspondent. And I don't think either they nor I knew what a correspondent <laughs> did. But I went to like craft fairs and um, met and interviewed woodworkers and so on. Okay. Anyway, as a part of that, I ended up sending in some sketches, and John got in a bind, I think and uh, asked me if I would help temporarily with the methods column, which they had just started uh, a couple of uh, issues before. So I uh, agreed to do that, and then it sort of kept going from there. Just evolved. 
Well, that's that's real. That's really cool. I mean, I I actually thought you were when I first started. I thought you were the first illustrator, and when I started doing some some more work and researching methods of work for various um, extra publications, I it's really interesting how the first iteration of methods of work was a bunch of you know I think the authors were sketching themselves, and then once you took hold of it, it really created a nice continuity and um, a personality of its own. I think. Well, thanks for saying that. Yes, I I looked back through some of the older issues uh, just recently, and and uh, was I'm really embarrassed by how amateurish uh, the drawings were back then. Uh, fine woodworking, and, and I remember specifically an art director by the name of Roland Wolf actually taught me how to do perspective drawing. Wow. And he would gently, uh, when I would do something wrong, he would let me know <laughs> in a gentle coaching way. Not uh, so. Uh, so on the job. It was training. really, uh, really great of of uh, Taunton Press and Fine Woodworking to, you know, to sort of bear with me while <laughs> while I was learning how to draw. Well, that's really that's a that's a pretty amazing story because you know I know Mike has uh, employed you often to do illustrations for us outside of methods of work, and I always thought you were um, you know trained as an illustrator and and kind of picked up woodworking on the side. So that's an interesting story for me. You have to say, uh, I re- no, that's uh, that's not true. Uh, in fact, I had to go buy a book on perspective drawing, you know, to get the fine points of it. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's great. Hey, hey uh, Jim, this is Matt, and I was gonna. I was going to say that uh, for me, I, I read the magazine before I started working here about eight years ago. And when I think about fine woodworking illustration, uh, the first thing that always comes to my mind is your style. Uh, that's the even though there you know there are other illustrators that work for the magazine who I admire. Your it's your stuff that for me is fine woodworking illustrations. Yeah, that's really yeah. what I think about. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I I've mean, go ahead. I'm always sorry. felt like uh, the, the drawings ought to look like. Uh, they were hand done by the author. Yeah. So I, I hesitate ever to use a ruler or you know a straight edge or a French curve, and I always try to do it by hand so that you have this little bit of a shaky thing going on that makes it look hand drawn. Yeah, and, and, and I, that's good for some things and not so good for others. Yeah, and Jim, you're you're sort of running the risk of selling yourself way too short on your talents here. So I'll, I'll give you my um, Jim Ritchie illustration story. And when I first came to the magazine, the art director was Bob Goodfellow, who now heads up Fine Home Building Magazine. And traditionally, art directors also did some illustration work for the magazine as well. So I had my first little illustration package, and Bob said, why don't you do something and see if you can do kind of a Jim Ritchie style? And I I looked at your work, and it it is a very friendly-looking, very hand-drawn-looking, and very simple-looking on the surface. And so I said, oh, yeah, I can – no problem. I can do something like this. So I tried something and showed it to Bob. He goes – now, why don't you try something more Jim Ritchie looking? And I, so I gave it two or three more tries and finally decided, even though the style, it looks very, very simple. It's, um, it's very, very well crafted. I never did nail it. And, and sort of since then, I've taken a back seat and I, I tend to have folks like you and the other illustrators turn my chicken scratches into real illustrations for me. Yeah. So and what's really funny, Jim going on and piggybacking on Mike's comment. Um, I actually think you, you're, 
your drawing has your own name. Like it's when we have some of our meetings about articles now, we want to present them. We'll often say, well, it's a Jim Ritchie style illustration. Yes. So you've got your own uh, personal style, and it's really uh, it's been it's been an amazing run, and and the you know the magazine it's just you know it's really going to um, miss your your hand drawn touch for sure. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Hey, one of, we have a couple other questions regarding. Um, your memory about working on the column. Do you have any favorites? You know, we just uh, had a segment where we talked about some of our favorite um, tips of all time. Have you had any, do you have any in your mind that stand out as being uh, a favorite, whether for good or bad reason? Well, you, you got to remember that probably there are th- literally thousands of these tips, you know, over, uh, over the years. The ones that, the ones that I've used, that I know I've used the most, uh, one is a sliding uh, cutoff, a crosscut type box for a table saw. And that, it's just part of the common woodworking language nowadays, you know, to make a sliding crosscut yeah. box for a table saw, but that was not the case back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I remember making that and and using that for years and years until uh, things like uh, uh, miter saws, you know, compound uh, miter saws came along. They could do the same thing. Another another tip that I've used many times is the uh, French cleat type system for hanging things off a wall. Mm-hmm. And I've used the little L-shaped buttons for fastening tabletops to... Uh, you know, the undercarriage. Tables, yeah. I've used that dozens of times, and all of those were at their basis. I, I remember first seeing them, you know, showing up as tips, well, uh, hey, methods work tips. Here's a, here's a but, quick uh, uh, I'm sorry. I always enjoyed the the little creative things that people would come up with that, that you hadn't thought of, you know, some different use for a tool or you know, something that was universal, but it was very creative and off the wall. Right. Those were the ones that I enjoyed. And it turns out, you know, we discovered, you know, well, I discovered when I first started working with you on the column uh, years ago that you build a lot of these things so you can figure out how to illustrate them. What about what's the percentage of, of tips that you have illustrated that you've built? Did you build every one of them? Well, I would say at least half. Wow. wow. Uh, it kind Holy of depends God. on what we get from the author. Yeah. If we get a really good photograph or drawing from the author, then we can use that as the basis. But by and large, the stuff we get from the authors is is uh, not very usable. <laughs> so, uh, so then it depends on what it is exactly. If it's a little jig or a little fixture you know, that I can mock up or build simply in the shop, then I do it. Sometimes it's a huge rack or something that, it just is not practical yeah. to uh, to build or it uses a tool like a, a dust collection machine or something like that that I don't have. Right. But if it's if it's a smallish thing that I can mock up or build, uh, I do that because then I can walk around and look at it from every angle and kind of figure out what's the best way to communicate this to mm-hmm. the readers. 
the best. You know, you get some really odd things where you have to be underneath it, actually, you know, to uh, to show how it works. For, for a minute there, I had the image in my head that Jim's got on his property somewhere a big barn just full of clamp racks that he's had to make. <laughs> <laughs> well, clamp, I do have a clamp rack, uh, and I should mention that uh, clamp racks are my least favorite thing to draw <laughs> because... Typically, they have uh, a zillion parallel lines, yeah. you know, of, of uh, clamps right. in the rack, mm-hmm. and every one of those parallel lines on my shaky hand, and I'm trying to stay parallel to the to the line next to it. So that <laughs> they're my least favorite things to draw. But we've had dozens and dozens of clamp rack ideas come in over the years. Oh, I know. <laughs> so, Jim, traditionally for, for illustrators, the human hand is one of the toughest things to draw. In fact, some of our illustrators who do great furniture won't even sort of touch a hand drawing. But you've done a lot of hands throughout the years, and even in your loose style, you've you've really nailed it. Is that something you had to work on to get good, or is that still something you still struggle with? Uh, well, I have to work on it. And uh, drawing hands is is tricky because... To draw a, a hand, it can't look like a real hand. It has to look yes. like a, it has to take on certain characteristics uh, to be believable. But uh, I didn't draw hands in the beginning, and I've only started doing that in the last few years. Oh, here, interesting. Uh, just because I didn't have the confidence to do it before. But some tips need a hand. Uh, you need to see the hand in there. Uh, you know, the action of the hand is what uh, communicates the tip yes. the best. Yep. Yeah, yeah. All right, here, here's the, the one final big question. Now that fine woodworking won't be uh, knocking on your door every other month to uh, make you do some drawings and do some editing, what, uh, what's in store for you? What, do you, what, are you? what are your plans for the future? Well, I'm at that stage in my life, if I'm ever going to travel, uh, I need to do it now, you know. I'm yeah. uh, I'm in my seventies, and uh, so one of these days, you know, I'm going to get too old and decrepit to 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 be able to travel. But right now, I'm still healthy, so uh, I've retired from my my uh, oil company job, and now I've retired from you guys. So that opens up the door for traveling and. Uh, not worrying so much about this schedule every other month. <laughs> we have a cabin in Colorado, and uh, we go out there for as long as we can, but uh, a couple of months in the summer to get away from the Oklahoma heat. Yeah. But then I always needed to make a trip back uh, in August, uh, you know, to uh, work on the column. So now I, I don't have to worry about that. You can stay put. <laughs> Well, you know, we really appreciate everything you've done for us. Um, I think um, I think I speak for every editor who basically sat in my seat when I say uh, thank you. Well, I really appreciate that. I, I've really enjoyed working with you guys too. That's the part of this that I that I don't like is that I've really had a you know a great relationship with all the fellows I've worked with, and and actually one girl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's, you know, that part of it's going to be, uh, and plus the challenge of 
you know, a package coming in and wondering, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a challenge to figure out how you're going to put it together. Yeah. Well, I'll miss that part. Well, we'll miss we'll miss you and your work for sure. So, um, happy trails. Well, thank you guys very much. And th- thank, thank you, Jim. Thanks for, thank uh, you. yeah, thanks for spending some, a few minutes with us today, Jim. And, sure. we'll, and we'll be You're in welcome. touch again for sure. Okay. All thank right. you. Take All right. care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was, uh, Jim Ritchie, a fun conversation. We're really going to miss him. Let's, uh, let's move on to, uh, uh, the next question. This one is from John Quinn. And John has been having some trouble with his bandsaw. He says, I've been resawing a lot of red oak boards with my 14-inch bandsaw, and I upgraded it with a riser block and a one-and-a-half horsepower motor. I've been using three-quarter-inch and one-inch carbide-tip blades. Um, I had been getting good results until my old rubber bandsaw tires, which were made with a molded-in crown, wore out or got chewed up by the carbide teeth. I tried replacing the tires, and the carbide would not stay centered. The carbide blade would not stay centered on the wheels at all, and usually thrust forward. Should I try to recrown the tires or buy tires that are crowned? And I think, uh, I think we all sort of realize that maybe it's beyond the tires, and it's really the blade that he's using, right, Matt? Yeah, for a 14-inch bandsaw, even with a riser block, uh, I would say you do not want to use a three-quarter inch or one-inch bandsaw blade. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if you have to tension those blades so high that you're actually, you know, stressing the uh, attachment, the wheel attachments, and it, it tends to Maybe tilt forward, forward, and yeah. that might be why they tend to skate towards the front of the wheel. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I have a uh, carbide tooth blade uh, for my 19-inch bandsaw, and the, the blade body is thicker than your average bandsaw mm-hmm. blade, and it, they do need more tension. And normally you don't find them in links suitable for a 14-inch bandsaw because they're just not uh, – because the, the the wheel, the diameter of the wheel is too small uh, and uh, it causes the, the, the blade to have to flex too much to get around it and you can end up with breakage, I think. But uh, I would say you don't really need – just go to like a, a half-inch blade mm-hmm. – uh, and you know, like a high carbon steel for resawing, he said, right? Yeah. Yeah. So just get like a half inch blade, three teeth per inch hook tooth and high carbon steel and they're inexpensive and it's not a big deal if they go dull because they're cheap right. as opposed to spending 150, 200 bucks on a carbide tooth, tooth blade. Yeah. yeah. Much overkill. So, all right. Well, I think it's time to wrap it up uh, for this epi- episode of Shop Talk Live. Tune oh, again in. Well, we didn't answer his, but he, he has to get new tires, too. Oh, yeah. We forgot. Get new tires, John. <laughs> yeah. And your, your, your tires, your, your four, on a 14-inch bandsaw, it's, a lot of times it's, you should look at the wheel. And if the wheel is, has a crown built into it, then you want to get tires that do not. Yeah. If the wheel does not have a crown... Then you get tires that do on a 14-inch bandsaw. I believe that's correct. Mike? Yeah, I'm trying to think which is which. I'm not sure. Because I don't know if my old saw was flat and I had a crown tire or if my grizzly saw is crown so it has flat tires. But you're right. It's one or the other. I mean, the bigger the bandsaw gets, at least in my experience, the less crown the wheel has. Like my my 19-inch bandsaw has very little crown to the wheel. Right. Uh, But um, on a 14-inch bandsaw, you want a little bit of crown, so – you got to figure out one way or the other. Yep. Keep, look at the look at the tie, wheel and see mm-hmm. if it has any crown built into it. Then uh, good luck replacing it. I know it can be a pain in the butt to put tires on. Yeah, and the bottom line, if you have a 14-inch saw <laughs> with a riser block, 
it's not really designed to be doing full-time heavy-duty resawing. Correct. You can do yeah. it on, on occasion, but but you're it's almost not the right tool for it. So you are pushing it to its limits to be doing that as especially, often as it sounds like you're doing. Especially yeah. a twelve inch height, you know, like the full right. height capacity. If you're doing, you know, resawing four to six inches, no big deal. But right. if you're resawing oak boards at twelve inches, you're gonna kill the bandsaw. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like they're long lengths too, so there's yeah. uh, there's a lot of stress going on there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now to so just send sorry, that wood to Newtown, Connecticut, <laughs> and we'll take care of it. As long as it's not red oak. <laughs> well, oh, could, I like could, like oh, Ripson red oak or Quarterstone red oak. Gorgeous. Yeah, take that all day long. I thought you didn't like red snob. Oak, I'm not the snob. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's it for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Tune in again in two weeks on April first for our next episode. And by the way, folks, we need your questions. It, it, you know, it makes the show. So send them as well as your comments to shoptalk at taunton.com. That's shoptalk at taunton.com. Please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. You can catch the podcast via iTunes. And while you're there, please give us the all-powerful five-star rating. You can also stream the podcast on the web at www.shoptalklive.com or catch us on iHeartRadio. Finally, visit findwoodworking.com to keep up with the exciting tool giveaway for our 40th anniversary. Their current prize is, set, is a set of Lee Nielsen socket chisels. Mm, what? Fancy. Yeah. Socket five, five chisels? Socket chisels. Socket chisels. Oh, socket to me. Socket to me. That was yeah. like socket wrenches. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you listen to socket wrenches now. Yeah, nice. And they're very sharp. To win them, you must enter by March 22nd. Uh, to enter, go to findwoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps. That's the number 40. Finally, keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook. And look for Matt, Mike, and me on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening, folks, and have fun in the shop. What you do, if you have a shoe and it's a little bit worn out. <laughs> First step one, get a shoe. Yeah, who has a shoe? God, uh, Mike. Get a shoe. Why you, it's, this is only for the extremely wealthy. You nail it to a wall. <laughs> and you put your files in it. Issue 15, right there. Fine Woodworking Magazine. That's brilliant. Yeah. They should have just stopped methods of work after that. <laughs> they should have.